Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is part one of a series about garments, where Denver discusses temple garments, wedding garments, and other clothing as mentioned in the scriptures. Marriage was the first ordinance. It was introduced before the fall. It was introduced before man was instructed on sacrifice. Go back to the book of Moses in um, chapter 4. And um, in verse uh, 27, after um, they had transgressed, but before they had been sent out of the garden... We learn uh, in um, verse 27 of Moses chapter 4, Unto Adam and also unto his wife did I, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothed them. Now, it's important that while the account sometimes refers to uh, Adam by meaning both Adam and Eve, In this case, it was necessary for a clarification to be made. The garment that was given unto them to clothe their nakedness is also referred to in the temple as the garment of the holy priesthood. And God wants the record to be clear unto Adam and also unto his wife. Did I, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothe them? Therefore, Adam was not clothed and then told, you go and do this and clothe your wife. God clothed them both. God did not expect Adam to intercede when it comes to the clothing of the woman. God treated her as if she too were about to embark upon a journey into mortality that would require her likewise to understand the principle of sacrifice. Because think about it for one moment. You learn, we'll, we'll look at this in just a moment, you learn that they practiced sacrifice thereafter, but when were they taught the principle of sacrifice? They were taught at this moment. There are legends about... And, and they show up in a variety of ways. They even show up in mythical characters. But they're legends about the animal that was chosen by God to slay and to offer as a sacrifice uh, in order to clothe them with the skins of an animal. And I rather like the theme of many of those. The theme is that when the animals were brought to Adam and Adam named the animals, there were some that he really liked more than others. But there was one particular animal that he liked above all the rest. It was that animal and that animal's consort who were slain in order to provide the clothing for Adam and Eve so that Adam and his wife Eve could understand that the principle of sacrifice came at an enormous price. And so the animal was no longer able to exist in this sphere, having been used originally while yet in the garden to provide the coats and to drive home the point about the sacrifice that's required in order to clothe the nakedness of the man and the woman.
I'm thinking in a room that swarms. Uh, some of you might envy the nakedness of Adam and Eve. <laughs> I'm hoping that you re refrain. But... <laughs> so if you turn over to um, Moses chapter 5, beginning at um, verse 5, this is talking about after they had been expelled from the garden. It says, he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. And after many days, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. And then the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father which is full of grace and truth. So that sacrifice that was performed that brought such sadness in verse 27 of chapter 4 that occurred before they were driven out of the garden was simply a commandment to do, which Adam and Eve then did. And it was some time later, many days later, and many days is not defined, it appears to me from the context as we go further that many days in this context means many years. In fact, it means more than many years. It means many generations. There were many generations of men alive on the earth while Adam and Eve were there before the definition or the explanation of why they were offering sacrifice was finally given to them. And you're impatient. And you want to know more, and you want to know it now. And you don't think that God tries the patience of all those to whom he will eventually come. So reading between the lines of the Old Testament, because the record doesn't make it clear, we can um, assume that the garment that was given to Adam in the beginning was handed down through each of those, just like the records were handed down through each of those. And it was that garment that came into the possession of Joseph that the jealous brothers took and destroyed, um, well, damaged, a remnant of it remained, all of which proved to be um, an allegory to what, um, what history would show about that family. We don't know if at the time of destroying the relic of the garment, they destroyed the relic of the records of the fathers because the record is silent about that. But it's, it's pretty clear that if they couldn't share in the, the prize, if they couldn't share in the artifact, if they couldn't share, and from their perspective, this is probably the correct way to categorize it, in the talisman. See, when, when Abraham received the records of the fathers, he got it from his father, who was an idolater. He regarded those records as nothing more than a talisman, a good luck charm. Abraham regarded it as something different, and he worshiped the God of heaven, and through them, he connected to the God of heaven. Well, the brothers who were jealous of this uh, 
passing down of a relic that's more talisman than, than meaningful uh, source of inspiration and knowledge about God may well have destroyed it. They may have copied it. There may have been other versions of it that were made available or parts of it if they were interested in it. But I, I think the original of that may, just like the garment that was given to Adam, have been destroyed at that point. We're reading in the Joseph Smith testimony. Look at the next verse. While it was thus in the act of calling upon God. In the act of calling upon God. If you're in the right way, with the right faith, looking for the right answers, you don't even get to finish the sentence. God knows what you have need of even before you ask. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. Christ tells you that. That horrible aching, that longing, that hollowness, that emptiness within you is what Christ was designed to fill. That's his purpose in coming to his temple. So while he was in the act of calling upon God, he discovered a light appearing in his room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the ground. Uh, it's an interesting aside. I want to ask the question, why? Why did Moroni stand in the air, his feet not touching the ground? It's an interesting topic we're not going to talk about here. It's off subject. It won't get us to Zion anyway. But... There's stuff here. Oh, and look at this. He had on a loose robe of most exquisite whiteness. It was a whiteness beyond anything earthly I'd ever seen, nor do I believe that any earthly thing could be made to appear so exceedingly white and brilliant. His hands were naked, his arms also a little above the wrist, as also were his feet naked, as were his legs a little above the ankles. His head and neck were also bare. I could discover he had no, no other clothing on, but this robe it was open so I could see to his bosom. Notice this. This is not ceremonial garb. As a consequence of which, I can tell you that it's okay to be buried without temple regalia because you're not going to be wearing that stuff in the resurrection anyway if you inherit what? The angels of God, including Moroni, who was certainly exalted, where? You can read about the description of what Christ wears in the scriptures as well. Ceremonial garb is just that. It is ceremonial garb. It is designed to teach you about the creation, to endow you with certain knowledge about the process of being exalted. But it is not the attire that you'll see on the streets of heaven. I actually think... I, I think they look Egyptian. I think their attire looks Egyptian, but that's neither here nor there. Um, this is a guy who is wearing um, only a robe. It's not ceremonial. He doesn't have um, shoes on his feet. He doesn't have a bonnet on. He doesn't have a variety of things that we would associate with ceremonial dress. Um, 
You can read a description of Christ's attire in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 8. And the description there is very much like the description that we have here. Christ and um, Moroni wearing the same kind of thing. And then, hey, just for the fun of it, let's go back to Exodus 28. Um, Exodus 28. I want to I want to revert back to my Cecil B. DeMille-esque stuff. And these are the garments which they shall make: a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a broidered coat, a mitre and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and yellow and green and purple and orange and yellow. And, um, I'm sorry. Uh, you can read it. It's in here. Ooh, the ouches of gold and the chains of pure gold at the end of the wreath and work. I mean, he dresses you in funny attire, okay? God goes through in the ceremonial attire and he dresses you up and the purpose of the dress is ceremonial to communicate to you through symbolism knowledge about certain things, but they are not an end. They are a symbol. Six days of creation, six articles of clothing, each one of which can be associated with one of the days of creation. Therefore, as you enter through the veil, it is as if the entirety of all creation is redeemed in your person. You represent salvation for the entirety of creation because in you, should you be able to be rescued, creation itself continues. These are symbols. They communicate to the mind ideas, ideas that are eternal. They're not ends in themselves. Well, keep that in mind because you're here to be trained. You're here to learn something. You're here to learn about the power of godliness. And by here, I don't mean this room tonight, although I think that is certainly true. I'm talking about this lifetime in which you find yourself. This place, this terrible fallen world, this glorious opportunity in which sacrifice is actually possible. You don't avoid it, and you don't necessarily seek it out. But when it comes upon you, you face it down bravely, and you stand where God places you, and you don't let any man move you from where it is that God would have you be. Because therein lies salvation. You're obeying a law ordained before the foundation of the world. You can't lay hold upon such blessings unless you obey the law upon which it is predicated. There will always be, in absolute numbers, only a few who will find that straight and narrow path. There will be an overflowing abundance of those who will fight against it because they serve their master. You don't have time to worry about them. You serve yours. 
And that master needs to be Christ. DNC 45, verse 16. Let's look at that one. He says, um, I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples as he stood. This is verse 16 of DNC 45. I'm sorry. Verse 16. I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples as I stood before them in the flesh speaking to them, saying, as you have asked me concerning the signs of my coming, in the day when I shall come in my glory, in the clouds of heaven, to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. Um, This is a description of how he intends to return. If you go to 49, uh, DNC 49, um, Beginning at verse 22, he says, Verily I say unto you, the Son of Man cometh not in the form of a woman, neither a man traveling on the earth. Wherefore, be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness, looking forth for the heavens to be shaken, and the earth to tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man, for the valleys to be exalted and for the mountains to be made low, and for the rough places to become smooth, and this when the angel shall sound his trump. And um, this is how he intends to come. He may send people who are uh, messengers. He may send people who have things to say from him. But when he returns, he's going to return in glory. Um, Section 133, if you go there and you read um, beginning at verse uh, 46. And it shall be said, who is this that cometh down from God in heaven with dyed garments, yea, from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And he shall say, I am he who spake in righteousness, mighty to save. And the Lord shall be red in his apparel, and his garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. Um, I just add parenthetically, that his apparel is red, period, period. He will be clothed in red. And if someone offers you a vision in which they vary from this, I'll add my voice to Joseph's and bear testimony that when he appears, his apparel, apparel will be red. Now I want to refer to a verse and refer to this verse in the context of the temple. Apply these words solely and exclusively for a moment to the temple. Do not expect to eat the bread or wear the garment of the laborer in Zion. If you oppose the work, if you stay your hand, if you refuse, and others do the labor, don't expect to eat the bread or wear the garment. Now, here's a sober moment that I want to remind you about, which need not continue. Go to Ether chapter 12. This is Moroni 
as he's completing the translation of the record that his father said would be included within his father's book, the Book of Mormon, but his father did not translate. And so Moroni translated and included it within the Book of Mormon. And as he's wrapping up his translation, he includes a dialogue. It's a very sobering dialogue in Ether chapter 12, beginning at verse 36. And it came to pass that I prayed, this is I, Moroni, the translator. So this is an ether. This is Moroni's uh, interlude. I prayed unto the Lord that he would give unto the Gentiles grace that they might have charity. And it came to pass the Lord said unto me, if they have not charity, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thy garments shall be made clean. And because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. And now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles. Did you see what just happened? Moroni begged the Lord to give unto the Gentiles grace. And the Lord says, it doesn't matter to you. He did not give Moroni what he asked for. He did not promise the Gentiles would receive grace. The Lord could not do that because it would abrogate both the law, grace for grace, and our agency because we are free to choose. Therefore, the Gentiles inherited the restoration with no promise from Christ to Moroni that those who would receive this record would be given the grace of God. That is dependent upon you. Now I, Moroni, bid farewell unto the Gentiles, yea, and also unto my brethren whom I love, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ, for all men shall know that my garments are not spotted with your blood then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus, that he has talked with me face to face, and that he's told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. This is that Lord who, when you get past the thunderings and the lightnings, you'll speak with. He talks in plain humility. It is not his position to cause fear in your heart but to bring to you comfort. His purpose is not to leave you comfortless, but to come and to comfort you. It's you that presents the barrier. It's you that presents the fear. And that, rightly so, because we ought to fear. And what we should fear is our own weakness and our own sins, because our greatest sin is our ignorance. And only a few have I written because of my weakness in writing. And now I would commend you. This is Moroni commending you, the Gentiles, who are going to receive this book. I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father and also Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. He asked for grace to be given God cannot give it. Then he turns and he says, you Gentiles, please seek 
for his grace. It cannot otherwise be given you. The Book of Mormon's assessment of us is sober indeed. And the arrogance with which we read that book blinds us to the predicament in which we find ourselves. The plea, seek for grace. It is through grace that we obtain charity and it is through charity we're able to bless others because the fact of the matter is you can't bless anyone nor hold that priesthood that is primarily designed to administer blessings and not cursings unless you have charity for others, unless you are willing to do things you would rather not do, unless you are willing to subordinate your will to the will of the Father because it is the purpose of the Father to bless all of his offspring. Therefore, it is only through grace you acquire what you need to be of use to God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So when Christ begins his planting, he's actually a restorer of an earlier religion. Instead of this being something altogether revolutionary and new, Christ was a restorer. He was an antiquarian. He was bringing back something which once had been. He was trying to get people to understand. See, the, the, the religion that Moses was trying to restore was originally significantly greater than the one that he wound up restoring because the people were unwilling to accept the earlier version. So those things were broken, destroyed, discarded, and a new innovation was established through Moses, the great lawgiver, who gave a law of a lesser performance of uh, observances, rites, in order to point forward to something else that would be coming, so that maybe when that something else, when it came, could explain to them what the law was intended to have them observe. The paschal lamb that occurs where the blood on the lintel and the doorpost saves you from the destroying angel is a type of Christ because Christ's blood will save you from destruction. The rites involving the shedding of blood in the courtyard of either the tabernacle or later the temple was designed to be a, a propitiation, a form of paying the debt for sin. The wages of sin are death. Therefore, it's necessary that death be demonstrated through the sacrifice of animals in order to have your mind pointed forward to some great sacrifice whose effect will be saving you from sin. In the courtyard of either the tabernacle or in the um, temple, when you sacrifice animals and you spill their blood by cutting the neck and letting the, the blood flow out, blood gets all over the ground. It gets tracked. It gets splashed. It gets upon you. And prophets use this analogy of blood and sins and blood on your garments and, and shaking the blood off of your garments 
as an analogy that's based upon the effect of performing the law of Moses, which itself is intended to point you to Christ. And Christ demonstrated by his teachings and actions that he fully understood that was what was happening and that was who he was and what his role was. When Christ knelt to wash the feet of the disciples, one of the things that washing feet in that culture accomplished was cleansing the blood off the feet that was tracked everywhere when you got near the, uh, the courtyards of the temple in order to show that they were unaccountable for sin. He was removing from them the, the guilt that, that the blood was intended to exhibit. This is decidedly limited in what is appropriate to be said. But the question is about, since Christ came to fulfill the law and, and the practice of animal sacrifice was uh, done away with and what we're to offer is a contrite or a broken heart and a contrite spirit as a sacrifice and animal sacrifice was a type to teach the people the coming Messiah, he fulfilled that. Why would animal sacrifice be reinstated? Okay, as... I don't want to get out ahead of where we are at this point, but let me say it will be done for entirely appropriate purposes that will be perfectly satisfactory to the understanding of those that are involved. It's not going to be some kind of temple turned slaughterhouse. It's not going to be a production line in which... um, the hems of your garments and the blood shaking from the hems of your garment becomes a cliche because of the abundance of the flowing of blood in the courtyards of the temple of um, Solomon and later the temple of Herod. It, it It will be decidedly confined, limited, for purposes that will be adequately understood by those who, on the rare occasions when that uh, practice is reinstated, uh, participate, um, witness. But I think that's all that can be said. Um, You won't be disappointed. The gospel is delicious. Get rid of that stale, wretched stuff that you consume and go on to find the life, the light, and the vigor that is contained in the words that we have in Scripture. This stuff is delicious. If you'll partake of it and prepare yourself, you can improve this estate in a way that will reflect credit in the next estate. Don't forfeit the opportunity. Thus they become high priests forever. They become high priests forever. They had it before the foundation of the world. They come here. They have authority here. And that authority began there and it will continue into the next life. Therefore, 
they can bless and you're blessed indeed. Thus they become high priests forever after the order of the son of the only begotten of the father who is without beginning of days or end of years, who is full of grace and equity and truth. And thus it is, amen. Now, as I said, concerning the holy order or this high priesthood, there were many who were ordained and became high priests of God. And it was on account of their exceeding faith and repentance and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. Therefore, they were called after this holy order and were sanctified and their garments were washed white through the blood of the lamb. You say you want to be baptized and to be cleansed from all sin? I say have at it. But in addition, this prototype of the saved man requires that you do something in addition. You may only achieve a limited amount of grace in this life, but that limited amount of grace you must hold fast to. You cannot receive more if you will not receive what's offered now. And if you'll receive what's offered now, you'll be added upon. None of us is spared from mutual failure. We are not Zion. We will never be Zion if we do not repent. All of us must repent, turn to face God with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy, or we will not establish godly peace among us. The answer to the prayer for covenant and the covenant are the beginning blueprint. That blueprint teaches the need to be better people. Following it is more challenging than reciting it. No one can learn what is required without doing. Working together is the only way a society can grow together. No isolated spiritual mystic is going to be prepared for Zion through his solitary personal devotions. Personal devotion is necessary, of course, but the most pious hermit will collide with the next pious hermit when they're required to share and work together in a society of equals, having all things in common. Do not pretend it will be otherwise. Failing to do the hard work outlined in the covenant is failing to prepare for Zion. It's failing to have oil in the lamp. It's failing to put upon you the wedding garment. If you think you are one of the five virgins who will be invited in when the bridegroom arrives and have never attempted to obey the Lord's commandments, you will find yourself left outside when the door is shut. If you come from the highways and byways without a wedding garment because you fail to keep the covenant, you'll be excluded. There is work to be done. Almost all of it is internal to us. The five prepared virgins and the strangers who brought a wedding garment will be those who keep the covenant. It is designed to give birth to a new society, new culture, and permit a new civilization to be founded. The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number nine, entitled Marriage and Family, given in St. George, Utah, on July 26, 
2014. The Denver Snuffer Podcast, Episode 60, entitled The Third Route, released March 10, 2019. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number one, entitled Be of Good Cheer, given in Boise, Idaho, on September 10, 2013. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number seven, entitled Christ, Prototype of the Saved Man, given in Ephraim, Utah, on June 28, 2014. Denver's conference talk, entitled Things to Keep Us Awake at Night, given in St. George, Utah, on March 19, 2017. Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, talk number eight, entitled A Broken Heart, given in Las Vegas, Nevada, on July 25, 2014. Denver's Christian Reformation Lecture Series, talk number four, given in Sandy, Utah, on September 7, 2018. Denver's conference talk entitled Civilization, given in Grand Junction, Colorado, on April 21, 2019, and the Q&A session following that talk on the same day. For information about upcoming Christian fellowship conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There you will also find a complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers available to download free of charge. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.